Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Golden Boy. By all accounts, Thomas Gilbert Jr. led a charmed life. The son of a wealthy financier, he grew up surrounded by a loving family and all the luxury an Upper East Side childhood could provide. Education at the elite Buckley School and Deerfield Academy, and summers in a sprawling seaside mansion in the Hamptons. With his striking good looks, he moved with ease through glittering social circles and followed in his father's footsteps to Princeton. But Tommy always felt different. The cracks in his facade began to show in warning signs of OCD increasing paranoia, and most troubling, an inexplicable hatred of his father. As his parents begged him to seek psychiatric help, Tommy pushed back by self-medicating with drugs and escalating violence. When a fire destroyed his former best friend's Hamptons home, Tommy was the prime suspect, but he was never charged. Just months later, He arrived at his parents' apartment, calmly asked his mother to leave, and shot his father point-blank in the head. My guest today on Murder Most Foul is journalist John Glatt, who takes an in-depth look at the devastating crime that rocked Manhattan's upper class. With exclusive access to sources close to Tommy, including his own mother, Glatt constructs the agonizing spiral of mental illness that led Thomas Gilbert Jr. to the ultimate unspeakable act. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, There's a chilling prologue in the beginning, which again is great. I like that. Lays out what, you know, the the last few minutes that, that brought us to the case, in other words, the murder, it is a murder of a father, it's, it's, it's technically patricide. Um, and, and one of the things that I thought was amusing, if anything could be amusing was that a, uh, and, and a writer for the New York Post got kind of sneak snuck into his jail at during the trial, or just before it was starting, I guess, and capsulized this whole case. And I just like to read that from the New York Post. Murder, money, madness, how the son of privilege went off the rails for a life of violence, vice, and alleged patricide. It was very much the the public's perception of the case, basically, and mine to be going in with. I mean, reading the tabloids and whatever, and it had everything for a tabloids, but as I immersed myself in it and I got to know the characters, I became friends with Tommy's mother, Shelley. Uh, over the years, she got to trust me with her story. 
I saw that really that was uh, not true. You know, it was sensationalized and it's not what really happened. And I'm hoping my book, Golden Boy, goes some way to tell the real story, which I think is a lot more interesting than the sensationalized version that was in the tabloids. Well, and if you use that, that concept of privilege, your automatic reaction as a reader would be, oh, he got off. They had money and he got off. He didn't get off. He didn't get uh, off. He did not. Maximum, basically. Yeah, he's in jail for the next 30 years. So he did anything but get off. <laughs> so let's uh, go through, we've mentioned him, let's go through the, the, the major, uh, there's going to be people to come up along the trip. But I think as I read it, and the, the notes I took, the main uh, people to at least introduce the audience to right now, of course, are Thomas Gilbert Sr., the victim, uh, Tommy or Thomas Gilbert Jr., who was the son and, and the murderer, uh, Shelly, uh, who is his mom, uh, two of his friends, Lila Chase, who we'll talk about her interesting connection to the entertainment world, and Peter Smith. I thought, and there's others, as I say, and I know he had a sister or a brother. Yeah, he did have a sister, yeah. Sister. But those of four with other you know, members of his friends and his, his college colleagues, were uh, uh, you know uh, instrumental and sort of signposts along as the case developed. So tell us a little bit about you know Tommy in the beginning. Well, Tommy came from a very good family, a very wealthy family. His father, Thomas Gilbert Senior, was pretty much a fixture on Wall Street. He was a was a financial giant over the years, and he started his own hedge fund which was mediumly successful. So he was well known in the uh, New York financial world and very well respected. And his mother, Shelley, uh, Shelley Ray was her original maiden name, Shelley Gilbert. Uh, she came from a very, uh, very distinguished family, in fact, and had a, you know, a rarefied childhood. So Tommy's roots were really impeccable. You know, they went to the best schools, his father and grandfather went to Princeton. So, you know, he really had a good, you know, certainly an immaculate breeding. And again, you see through letters, uh, uh, there's a lot going on that, again, as we get later into it with it, communication becomes simply through letters or email because of the strain uh, on all the parties, even before the murder. Um, you, you see love, you do, you see, uh, Shelly, you know, uh, you know, dad's going to do this. Dad's you know, going to send you this. He's going to help you out. So, you know, I, she is certainly a tragic figure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's important to just stake out the lay of the land with this case. Uh, mental illness ran in both sides of Tommy's family. In fact, uh, Shelly's father, uh, had, uh, he was bipolar and in fact he was uh, being treated for it in a mental hospital I think in around 1965 or 1966 and he committed suicide by jumping out of a window in a mental home. Uh, so mental illness played a very very important part and it was in both sides of the family and uh, really from uh, Tommy's uh, you know sort of early days probably 12 or 13 uh, he was at Deerfield School in Massachusetts. That's when it first started. Uh, he started getting kind of fears and contamination. He thought people were, you know, infecting him. He thought his roommate was infecting him. 
He thought clothing was contaminated. And I think he was really at a loss to explain what was going on for a while. And uh, he never really wanted to accept that there was anything wrong with him. And his parents did, in fact, you know, sent him to psychiatrists at that time. But Tommy was always vehemently against being analyzed, you know, as suffering from any mental illness. So that's really part of the problem of, you know, when it began. And it only got worse, of course, yeah. And and the um, diagnoses in the beginning, again, as you said, he saw uh, numerous psychiatrists along the way and they they cross referred him uh, to, to ones, depending on what that doctor could do uh, for them. But I know in the beginning, it was like kind of light things like hyperactivity, uh, half the, the kindergarten boys have that ADD, uh, OCD, uh, Tourette's, and Lyme disease. Well, OCD was a big one, you know. Uh, they really, I don't think he fitted into any kind of ready-made uh, diagnosis. Uh, and he saw a number of psychiatrists who all uh, diagnosed him as having different ailments. Nothing too uh, dangerous at the beginning, but uh, then it kind of roamed into you know, schizophrenia and things like that. But there was a lot of differentiations about what he had. And part of the reason was Tommy did not want to recognize that there was anything wrong with him. And he would always play things down, you know. He uh, was attractive. He was smart, and 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 he had a, a dry sense of humor. Um, and you know, so he, when he was sort of being normal, in other words, he, uh, you know, was a nice friend. He was a good friend. He played tennis. He he was part of the country club scene. Um, so, except he sort of. As they say, there was the normal movie a while back, failure to launch. He he never really like launched into, you know, he tried a little of this or a little of that, correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, he went to Buckley, which is a very kind of an exclusive uh, private school in uh, New York. Uh, he went to Deerfield, then he went to Princeton. He excelled at sport, you know, he was a top uh, football player, baseball player, very, very good at tennis. Uh, he was also very personable. He had a dry, as you said, a dry sense of humor. People kind of liked him. He was very, very good looking, you know, so he never had any problem with girlfriends, at the, you know, until they tried to go a little deeper and he was a little, he wasn't very articulate and he wasn't able to kind of hold a conversation too well, you know. So, uh, you know, he had on the surface, he was the perfect, you know, uh, person, young man. But as after, when he graduated from Princeton, there were some drug problems there. Uh, he took two years off to go around the world. Uh, and he eventually uh, did graduate from Princeton. But uh, whereas all the people he'd grown up with, you know, from Buckley and Deerfield schools, we're all making it in the world, you know, professionals in their various fields. Tommy was unable to hold down a job, you know, uh, he liked to surf, he really couldn't work, you know, every time he tried to uh, get a job in a bar or something that didn't work. Uh, 
and his father had high hopes of him, you know, following into the financial world, as Tommy did too, but he just didn't have the, uh, you know, the wherewithal to make it in the world. That was his failure to launch, basically. So his parents, being good, being parents of any kind, whether it's privilege or not, they fed not the mental part of it, but they fed the failure to launch part by apartments and airlines, and they just put money directly into a, you know, his allowance account. And so that wasn't, I don't think, you know, you can't say, look, you're a bum and you're out. No parent will do that, especially if it's not heavy drugs or something like that. They go, well, he needs some encouragement. He needs some direction. He needs a mentor, whatever. So this lifestyle that he had was supported not by him or not by hard work. Absolutely. I mean, it went, you know, after he graduated from Princeton, the early 20s, it carried on, you know, uh, for the next 10 years. They, you know, his parents paid for everything, you know, exclusive country club memberships, his car, his parking, his apartment, everything he wanted, they provided. And he, he happily took it, you know, he didn't really have uh, a gun to his head to get a job, you know. And it was only as things progressed as he turned towards 30 that his parents really saw that they had to do something to, you know, try and fire him into getting his career together because otherwise it wasn't happening. And his father, in I mean, exclusive, uh, he kept a man, he kept a, a manual on the computer, you know, like a diary of his thoughts. And he would sketch down, you know, the problems that he saw with Tommy. And this was a lot of them. And I got access to them. I was very lucky. So, uh, you know, they were part of the discovery of the court case and I managed to get access to them. And they were very, very revealing as, you know, Tom Senior was mulling over how he could get Tommy to sort of start getting a job and being taking care of himself and showing some responsibility. And what also uh, uh, figures into this, and it, you know, again, it doesn't have to be of a mental uh, defect, is jealousy and paranoia. We all have a little of that, you know, especially, you know, if we've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend we really like, and, and gee, you know, this isn't going well, and are they cheating on me, all that. But let's talk about someone who was fairly early on, you can tell me where she came into his life, all the way through the trial and beyond. She is one of the uh, she should have run, but she didn't. Lila Chase. Tell us about Lila Chase. Well, he met Lila Chase. Uh, you know, the, the families knew each other. The, the parents knew each other. And they met at the Maidstone Country Club in East Hampton. Uh, this was in his early 20s while he was still at Princeton. Uh, and they eventually developed a relationship. They got very, very close. They were together for like two years. They lived together on and off. In fact, Tommy moved in with Lila's parents. Uh, I should say Lila is the niece of Chevy Chase, you know, from Saturday Night Live, uh, which didn't really enter into the story, but she was. And uh, she was very close to Tommy, but uh, there was a lot of problems with drugs that Lila didn't like. Uh, she had a, a career going, you know, as an equestrian trainer. Uh, 
and it became dangerous like with Trump, he was bringing drugs home and doing that so that i think uh kind of broke up that relationship but lila remained very loyal and she tried to kind of keep Tommy on the straight and narrow, especially where drugs were concerned for a number of years. And she's one of the few people, except for his mother, that's really stuck by him, you know, right through now. Now, you say Saturday Night Live or her relationship to her uncle uh, or her blood does not uh, enter into it. Though there was this, again, along the lines of, of seeing things that aren't there in the sense of paranoia. He got all upset and was was railing about he thought Saturday Night Live was doing sketches on him. Yeah, well, that was part of his paranoia. And I mean, he would watch TV and he watched Saturday Night Live and he he would think that the uh, the, the sketches were directed at him. Uh, and his lawyer said, you know, this was during some of the hearings that Tommy at one point wanted to get a, a lawyer to sue NBC because they thought they were personally getting at him. But that just shows the level of paranoia that he was trying to cope and live through, you know, at that point. I mean, it was no joke, you know, he, he really was incredibly paranoid and his fears of contamination, you know, made his life very difficult. And of course, seeing psychiatrists um, along the line, and especially psychiatrists versus psychologists, they do their, it's not an answer to everything, of course, but they do rely on medication. Some of it is very important. Um, but so he didn't want to take much of it because it, yeah, it dopes you up. Uh, well, he, it, fl it flattens you out. Exactly. I mean, they would prescribe medication. He wouldn't take it. You know, there were various reasons. He didn't like the effects it had on him. Uh, it thought it affected his sex drive too. So he just wouldn't take these medications. And these doctors were like frustrated because they prescribed this stuff. He never took them, you know. But in fact, he was actually smoking dope. He was doing cocaine. He was taking LSD and mushrooms at certain points. So that really exasperated the situation, I'm sure. And again, it, it's a continuum for him. Um, nothing, as you mentioned, is going to get better if you're not treating it properly. So it's not, this doesn't go away like, uh, I don't know, acne or something. It's going to be there. And so, in one of these sessions, and this is the one that jumped out at me, where he was speaking to a, 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 one of the doctors and saying that he was considering suicide and he wanted to buy a gun. And, yeah, and, I, and, they, and the reading from the book is the, you know, I'm not there and I'm not the doctor who's treating him several times, uh, several sessions, but it doesn't seem like that worried the doctor too much at that when he said it. Yeah, but this was a few years before the, uh, the violence happened. In fact, he mentioned that he got on the internet searching for guns. And it, this came out in an incompetency hearing. And amazingly, the psychiatrist really didn't do anything about it, you know? Didn't take any action at the time and didn't really take it seriously. Which uh, kind of, in light of what happened later, was kind of rather scary and baffling. The beginning but later they did i mean after the initial time that uh you know he mentioned going on the internet to get a gun that wasn't taken too seriously but later uh after he uh was violent towards his former roommate peter smith uh who he was very very paranoid about and actually beat him up in the street uh his psychiatrist uh 
did this, I think it's called the SAFE Act, which meant that he was registered uh, and he couldn't buy a gun legally in New York State. He was on a list of people that couldn't buy guns. But in fact, he managed to circumvent that on the internet uh, via a Facebook gun group where he met uh, the gentleman in Ohio where he did get his weapon from. Now, if I remember, did he go to Ohio or did the guy come to him? He, he went to Ohio. I mean, originally the guy was going to send it, but because right. of the gun laws, he had to, he had to uh, have some registration in New York, which he couldn't get. So Tommy volunteered to drive out to Ohio, uh, pick up the gun and then bring it back. Now, talking about friends, we'll get we'll talk about Peter more a little bit more. Um, and, you know, again, he was one of his good friends, probably best or whatever. I mean, he's mentioned quite a bit in the book. Uh, and um, he tells about again, this has to do with girls and jealousy. Tell us about think, the closet affair. The closet affair. Yes. He, he was Tommy was obsessed by this uh, New York socialite. Uh, by the name of Lizzie Fraser, who was, uh, in fact, she was, I think, uh, Gorka magazine made her the it girl of a certain year. She's very glamorous. She was very pretty. And Tommy had a brief fling with her, as did many other people, including his ex-roommate, Peter Smith. And he became obsessed that, you know, after he split up from Lizzie, he became a Smith, obsessed that Peter Smith and other friends were seeing Lizzie. So he would like, uh, when he was at the Hamptons at weekends, he would sneak into parties and whatever, and where Lizzie would be. And he'd go into the closet in bedrooms to see whether she'd come in with somebody else and catch her in the act. Uh, and he was in, in the closet in, in a bedroom when it's, a couple came in and had a romantic fling and then caught Tommy running out. So it became the standing joke of that season in the Hamptons about Tommy being in the closet. I mean, basically, uh, you know, it was his group of friends, the only friends Tommy had. And Peter Smith uh, had really kind of taken him under his wing. Uh, they both went to the same school, but they hadn't seen each other for a number of years. Then they kind of met up on a beach. Uh, Peter tried to help him, you know, and he took him under his wing, as I say. Uh, he moved in as a roommate to Peter's Brooklyn apartment uh, for a while. Uh, and everything went okay for, for a few months. And then Tommy became jealous of Peter, who was, you know, had a very successful career, was very ambitious, very smart and Tommy wasn't getting anywhere. I mean, it was like a failure to launch again, coming into it. And that was a lot of the conflict between the two of them. You know? there, there was a thing where Peter kind of humiliated Tommy. Uh, when Tommy became obsessed that Peter was uh, mistreating the, a dog they had, you know, when he wasn't. And Tommy made a big issue of it and Peter kind of humiliated him in front of all their friends. And that's when Tommy became angry and violent, staked him out a couple of weeks later at the apartment in Brooklyn, beat him up in the street, restraining order happened. And then about a year later, uh, Tommy came around, I think in, in the Hamptons, there was kind of like a drum circle around a campfire where Peter Smith was there with his brother and friends. And Tommy came up to approach them to see if he could be, you know, say, I want to be your friend. Can we let bygones be bygones? 
Peter Smith said, no, we got a restraining order. Tommy slunked away. And a few days later, uh, Tommy allegedly went out and uh, burned Peter Smith's family house, which was a set 17th century house in the Hamptons. Beautiful house, historic. Burned it to the ground and sat in the cemetery and watched it burn. And he, although he was a prime suspect, uh, he was never actually charged with it. And that was basically about two or three months before he murdered his father. So by that time, Tommy was out of control and very violent. I mean, when Peter testified at the trial, he said that, you know, he would usually be in the house on a Sunday night when it happened. And Tommy knew this, so probably did suspect he was in the house. But Tommy, but uh, Peter actually went to New York, I think, earlier, so it was empty. But Tommy didn't know that, I don't think. Well, so let's, um, again, like you said, he is now spinning out of control, um, still not, you know, making any headway in, in mental health, uh, you know, still occasionally, depending on what's going on, you know, uh, seeing doctors. And um, uh, let's, and it, uh, leading up to this, of course, his parents, especially his father, is trying to find all kinds of ways to draw, to, to put reins on him. And one of the things that it, at least, you know, you indicate in the book is that pushed him, it's like, why this day other than any other was, aside from the fact that he had the gun, and he must have been thinking suicide or murder, why don't you get a gun, but uh, was that his allowance had been slowly week by week, or maybe a couple times in the same week, dropping by hundreds of dollars. Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, basically his parents, I think his mother was kind of against it in a way, but the father decided that the only way to really get him back on the straight and narrow and force him into getting a job was to cut his allowance. So they were still paying for a downtown Manhattan apartment for him. And they cut the allowance, I think, from 800 to 600, maybe 400. And that morning, uh, the Sunday morning, when it all happened, it, the father had just cut it by about 100 or so, so 300. And, uh, you know, that, that's what the prosecution said was the motive of what happened, basically. Well, again, it's very well laid out in your prologue. And I, I invite people to get the book, not just for that. The book is fascinating. It's easy to read and um, doesn't get into the weeds. So you can follow the characters as they come in and out of the story. But I think there, as you pointed out, um, John, there's a deeper story here than murder and affluence. And again, some of the things in the paper that you quote or that came out as soon as he was charged, trust fund kid and spoiled brat. And that's not, that's not what it is. But um, so the book again, Golden Boy, so take us uh, as you, you know, narrate, narrate for us that it's a very quick day. It's not long in planning. Tell us about the day. What, what day, what was the date of, of the murder? January 3rd, 2015, because three days earlier, Tom Gilbert Jean Sr. had turned 70. In fact, it was quite a landmark birthday for him. Uh, and his son hadn't seen him for a number of months. So uh, that Sunday, Tom Gilbert got up 
He went to the uh, River Club, where he belonged to, played a few rounds of tennis, came back for lunch, uh, then went, I think, played another round, came back and was resting in his room. And suddenly out of nowhere, his son Tommy just turned up uh, at their uh, apartment. Uh, it, it was uh, in Beekman Place. Uh, the doorman let him up. They weren't expecting him or anything. He came in and he asked his mother if she would just go out. He said he had to talk business with his father, asked if his mother could go out and get him a sandwich and a Coca-Cola. She went out. Uh, she uh, became a little, after she was walking in the street, she became a little worried about what was going to happen, whether there was going to be any problems, because she knew that there was a lot of ang angst between father and son. So she decided to come back early and she came back and uh, she walked in and she found her husband uh, with a gunshot to the head in the bedroom, dead, and realized that her son must have done it and dialed 911. 911, where's the emergency? It's at 20 Beekman Place. 20 Beekman Place. 20 Beekman Place, zip code 10022. What are your cross streets? Uh, 50th and 51st. Are you in an apartment or private house? 8 D is in David. David on what floor? Uh, 8. What's the emergency today, ma'am? Um, my husband is, I think, dead. Okay. Please I'm rush. Connecting to EMS. Do not hang up, okay? Hello. Okay. Hello, caller. Is the ambulance for you or for somebody else? It's for my husband. You awake? He's a dead, I think. How old is he, ma'am? He's 60. He just turned 70. Okay, there's somebody there with you? No, just him and me. And he's not breathing? What? I don't think so. I can't get a pulse. Okay. Stay with me one moment. Okay, that's at uh, uh, 20 Beekman Place, apartment 8D is in David, in the uh, borough of Manhattan, correct? Yes. How long will you be? All right, I've already got the call out. All right, they'll be there quickly. You're getting firemen, the police, and the EMS. Uh, is he on the floor? And yes. He's on the floor, okay. Uh, I want you to open up his shirt. Okay. He's wearing a turtleneck. All right, uh, in which case, if you could kneel next to his chest. Okay. Yes. Is there somebody you could call to help you out, or? No. Right, okay. Um, kneel next to his chest, put your uh, left hand on the center of his chest. Yes. Just above the, uh, you know, the middle of his chest. Uh, put your second hand on top of the first. Yes. All right. I have to put you on speaker. Hang on. Just be careful. Don't hang up, okay? Hello? Okay, I'm still here, ma'am. Hang on. Hello? I'm still here. Okay. I'm pressing down. I've been watching Chuck. Okay. Emergency shows, like hospital shows. So oh, I, I understand. Keep your elbows straight. Use your, the, the weight of your upper body. To, to I think he's just dead. He's been shot. He's been shot? Yes. Okay. Uh, are you still willing to try to do... Uh... I'm doing compressions now. Okay. Keep your uh, elbows straight. Can I ask her a question, Arrow? What's that? Can I ask her a question? Yes. Hello, ma'am. You said your husband was shot? Yes. How long ago? Probably 10, 15 minutes ago. 10, 10 minutes ago, maybe. 10 minutes ago he was shot? Maybe 15. By whom? My son, I, who was nuts. But I didn't know he was this nuts. He said, it's my son, you know, he, he was nuts, but I didn't know he was this nuts. She is, is testifying about 
I mean, she knows her son did it, but she's now lost her husband and now she doesn't want her son to go to jail. So talk about, you know, some kind of a Shakespearean. Uh, well, she was in an impossible position because she was the prosecution, the, you know, um, prime witness, you know, she was the key witness. She saw, she saw Tommy come there. She's, you know, she was the main witness basically. But then again, he, you know, didn't want Tommy to go to jail. You know, she, she thought he had mental illness and she wanted him to be found, you know, you know, in basically not responsible for what happened to get the treatment he so well needed. But it was Shakespearean, I mean, at the trial, because she was divided between these two things, you know, she's the prosecution's main witness. She had to testify on their behalf, but she also wanted the defense to work, you know, so it was a, it was a difficult situation, if not impossible. Now, as you talk about insanity, there there are steps and they are endless. And that's why they should be followed in the book. And as I said, the judge of the case, who was right from preliminary hearing all the way through sentencing, should have been canonized. This took several years. And the first step was, of course, can he is he competent to stand trial? And that's a whole set of of psychiatrists because you can't even start going forward. And so they uh, after these back and forths, they say, yes, he can. Then again, his defense attorney, one of many that he had fired and hired back. And, and once you, then, so then they're not going to try to, they have a little bit of, you know, where did the gun go and all that, but they were not going to convince anyone that he physically didn't do it. So the only way out is that there's mitigating circumstances, which is insanity. And I know he wasn't pleased with that either, but he, on and off again would play along do what they needed and he refused to talk to the psychiatrist he would at times refuse to come to court which is 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 okay the defendant can refuse to to be in court and at times he got thrown out um tell us a little bit because you were there again i want my audience to understand you attended all this stuff you're not just writing about it at a distance so what was the courtroom like with him raising objections talking to the jury I mean, I've never heard, I'm sure it happens, but I never heard of this before. Either, and basically he was sabotaging his own defense. For some reason in his head, he wanted to do his own defense. I mean, there was one point the lawyer thought he might actually do his own defense, but he didn't. But he was basically doing everything against what the lawyer wanted him to do. Uh, he was refusing to acknowledge the lawyer. Uh, he would just sit there while his mother was testifying and shout objection. I mean, um, I, once 30 times in a period of you know, time, uh, he would address the jury uh, and ask them for a mistrial. I mean, the judge just got angrier and angrier and eventually he threw him out and he had to be dragged from the courtroom in front of the jury by bailiffs. I mean, the jury did not know what was going on. And I mean, some might have thought that it was a ploy on his heart behalf to show that he was incompetent. I didn't see that at all. I just don't think he knew where he was. I mean, by that point, we're five and a half, just over five years after the murder. He'd been Riker's Island the whole time without taking any medication whatsoever. And he just was the kind of didn't know where he was. And was, he was during this uh, for a good part of it. And then he got, again, it's in the book of how he travels from, from some psych mm -hmm. hospitals and our prisons in New York uh, city, not a good place, but he was on Rikers Island. 
Uh, and Rikers is not what you want to wish on your worst enemy. Yeah, he got into a lot of fights on Rikers Island and problems there. And, and it's a horrible place. And I'm sure it just led to him stagnating even more, basically. And so he, of course, the, the, the jury comes back uh, a bit of time of, you know, not instantaneously, not O.J. Simpson, you know, 20 minutes, but they, they came back with uh, a, this. He was charged with a second degree murder, correct? Not first. No, second-degree murder, and I think uh, having an unlawfully having a firearm, several charges like that. Yeah, uh, they found him guilty. I mean, they were very sympathetic. I spoke to them afterwards, and they were sure he did have mental illness. But the, uh, the thing was, did he know what he was doing when he pulled the trigger to kill his father? And the smoking gun from the jury was that he'd gone to uh he had gone to the apartment got up to his mother and asked her to get him a sandwich and a coca-cola knowing full well that she would never have a coca-cola in the house uh and when they they went through all the evidence they decided that was the smoking gun and that showed that he knew what he was doing you know and that's what it all hinged on basically right that this was uh, i don't know what the amount of premeditation that that the um DA would have wanted or needed for first, but decided for whatever reason uh, that there was a better shot, pardon the pun, with second degree. And it, like I said, there probably wasn't a lot of discussion. Well, I guess a couple of people did were in the beginning, uh, a couple of jurors were holding out for uh, not not guilty, but not guilty by reason of insanity. And they got brought along uh, with the other nine. And, you know, which that's how our jury system works. You're entitled, you know, you start with an opinion or you have an opinion. And if I were on a jury, I'd be looking going, okay, I can hang this jury if I really firmly believe he's innocent. Or I can say, okay, nine people, nine friends, we're not, you know, we've been friends now, nine people have seen the same evidence. I may have to rethink my position. And obviously in a nine to two or a, a eight to three, that's what happens. Yeah. And so was there any emotion? Uh, was there emotion in the courtroom? Was, was his mom there? It was 100 uh, Center Street, very plain court. Uh, he didn't really have any friends there. Uh, when his mother was there, uh, I'm sure she was, you know, heartbroken by the verdicts and whatever. He was, you know, he didn't adjust. He didn't have, show any display, any emotion whatsoever, you know, as they took him out of the court, you know. It's very, very sad. So um, he was given a maximum sentence of 30 years to life in prison, and uh, he's currently incarcerated at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. Um, and according to records, he's not eligible for parole until 2044, at which time he will be 60 years old. And uh, you haven't directly, you just, you haven't directly spoken to him since the verdict. Um, well, I, this has been a, fanta a fantastic hour, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I do uh, recommend, as I always do, that you get the book. And the book is Golden Boy, A Murder Among the Manhattan Elite by John Glatt. And if you go on, uh, we'll talk about either website or Facebook. I forget where I found you. You'll Or you just uh, Google John Glatt. Oh. You'll get all your books, correct? The list? That is johnglatt.com. Books available uh, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all good book sites and things. 
And um, the, the list of books, the other one I have, and someday we may come back to that is uh, uh, Perfect Father. And right. that, one, that one really gave me nightmares. So if you, if you, after this, folks, another one to go look at is, is Perfect Father. And John, briefly tell us if you can, if this is uh, not uh, speaking out of, uh, out of turn here, that you're working on a book on a very current case. Is that correct? Yeah, I have a book coming out in January called Doomsday Mother, which is about Laurie Vallow and Chad Daybell and the cult murders of her children and also their respective spouses. And that's coming out next January. Great. Well, I'll be back to you for that, if nothing else. So okay. again, I, I want to thank John so much. He's very busy. He's working on a case right now, and he's got to go on to uh, court TV to watch a hearing shortly. So yeah. uh, we got this in under, under the hour, and I do want to thank you so much, John, uh, for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Let's do it again. And there we have it, another episode of Murder Most Foul. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll tell your friends. The podcast, of course, can be downloaded from all the popular podcast platforms. And also, you can go to my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There you'll find a little information about me. And you'll also be able to leave a comment via email. Give, give me suggestions of how to make the podcast better. Or maybe if you have an interesting case that hasn't been covered uh, in the news or in documentaries, uh, please let me know. I'd love to uh, hear about it. So in the meantime, until we meet again, please stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.